0: Hello and welcome to Voices of the Industry, a podcast series bringing you leading industry voices who challenge thinking across transportation, infrastructure and cities.
1: Hello listeners, thanks for tuning in. Today's Voice of Industry is a bumper one. Our conversation with John Larkinson of the Office of Rail and Road was packed full of the challenging contribution of regulation to the UK's railways and roads. We didn't want you to miss out of the interesting insights and opinions that John and Stephen Rainwhite, our UK Managing Director, had to share. So we've split our conversation into a two-part podcast. I hope you enjoyed the first part. Hello folks, welcome to another edition of Steers Voices of Industry. Over the last eight years or so, and over 30 articles and podcasts now, we have captured the views, experiences, and insights of key players in their sectors from across the globe. You can find those at steergroup.com under the Insights tab. Today is no different about the conversation, and I'm very pleased to be joined online by John Larkinson, the Chief Executive Officer of the UK's Office of Rail and Road, or the ORR, as we say here in the UK. It's Fair to say that the ORR currently plays a key role in the UK transport sector. It is the independent economic and safety regulator for Britain's railways and the monitor of performance and efficiency for England's strategic road network. It aims to hold infrastructure managers network rail and high speed one to account and to make sure that the rail industry is both competitive and fair. The ORR also protects the interests of passengers and has other economic regulatory functions. It regulates health and safety for the entire mainline rail network in Britain, as well as London Underground, light rail, trams and the heritage sector. I'm sure we'll just get into how the ORR operates and how it has to evolve with John shortly. But let me first introduce you to John, my guest. John has been CEO of the ORR for over five years first on an interim basis before being confirmed into the role in March 2021. With over more than 20 years' experience working within the rail industry, he was Director of Network Regulation and Affordability, as a first term of affordability that we're coming across today, at the Strategic Rail Authority before joining the ORR in 2005. Whilst at the ORR and before becoming CEO, John had various roles, including Director of Railway Markets and Economics, as well as Director of Planning and Performance. John, welcome. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? Very good, Mike, and thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. Have I I captured your career appropriately?
2: I think you have. I was just going to add one thing, because my experience of of rail started a little bit before I joined the the rail, the Rail Authority, because... I actually, for quite a short period, about nine months, I was seconded onto the rail privatization team at the time of privatization of the railways in Britain in what would have been about the mid-90s. Those nine months actually got me interested in in rail. And it was only sort of, I then worked in consultancy for a while, and it was only when I saw the Strategic Rail Authority being set up, which was around about the turn of the century, that it sort of then gave me an opportunity to, to move back in, into, into rail.
1: We, we share a common thing because I, I joined the railway in 93 and was experiencing privatization within a train operating company. And I think that sucked me in as everything was changing around me. There was a new landscape to play with, new tools and processes to to develop. It was an exciting time. The change has continued, I think, over the last three decades.
2: I, I think that's a, that's a fair summary. Yes, it was in some ways a, a remarkable time. And I, I, I just remember the speed which things happened then? I mean, there's quite a bit of debate now about how fast or slow things do happen. But I remember going in there and all contracts between each of the companies in the new privatized rail system, they all had to be finalized. And I remember being told they've all got to be done in the next nine months. And that was it. It's it it a pretty clear um, target, <laughs> clear yeah. target, really. But um, yeah, it, it was a very different time, as you, as you say.
1: We might well get back onto that because it's a lot easier to break something up than it is to put it back together again. As I think we're finding a bit now. Let me quickly introduce my fellow guest or host today, Stephen Wainwright. Stephen is a consultant professional. The last 20 years, he's been with STEER in various roles, including leading our global aviation practice. Currently, Stephen is our Acting UK Managing Director, leading the team here in the UK. His previous experience includes working with the CAA, the Civil Aviation Authority in the UK and air traffic and also advising on air traffic management across Europe. So he has a great understanding of incentives, regulatory asset bases, price controls, etc. Stephen, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Um, Welcome and uh, hello to John as well. Thank you. John, I've said, I've tried to commit myself that as, you know, rail professional, rail professional, that we won't get sucked into a rail centric UK dominated conversation today, and that we'll try and broaden the consideration of where regulation comes into play in transport more generally, so it's more accessible for our our global audience uh, that are listening. I was going to start with, you know, let's talk about personal about how you got sucked in. You've already told me about uh, the privatisation unit. Was there something else? Because I, I think I saw that you actually have two degrees, both in economics, but one of them's in health economics, and you weren't you weren't in, sucked into the challenge of UK health system as opposed to UK rail.
2: Right, right. you 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 put me on the spot there. Uh, Yes, I I I do indeed have a a, a British master's degree in health economics, and I, I believe I was one of the first six people. To get one, it was an entirely new degree. And uh, obviously, I was was a lot younger uh, back in those times. And I had a very big idea that I was going to be uh, having a sort of pivotal role in the future development of health policy in Britain. But slightly naively, I went for a job at what was then the British Department of Health and, and Social Security. I got a job there as an economist. And I thought I was going in there to lead the health transformation. I met the chief economist and he just took one look at me and said, um, we've got a good job for you on pensions. And that was it, really. And uh, so you, you may say I didn't handle it very well. Huh? Maybe, maybe I was a bit naive in terms of my, my, my sort of uh, only, my, I think only my second job. But yes, I actually became a pensions economist for for, for some time. It wasn't quite what I was expecting, but I'm sure I'm sure it's still been in good stead.
1: I'm sure – and we might ask towards the end of this about the parallels between health economics and rail economics, uh, two sectors with some pretty challenges and uh, lots, of, lots of strong opinions about them as well. So, let's talk about your, your role. You've been chief exec now, as you say, confirmed in roles early 2021. How did, what, what's your day look like? What's the daily regime of, of the chief exec of the RRM? What, what, what you drive the organisation to achieve?
2: Well, I could I could go for the sort of classic cliche of everyone's different, but uh, I think the thing about the ARO, we're, we're actually a relatively small organisation. We, we've got about three hundred and fifty staff. We're based in six offices across across Britain. So my my, my day is, is certainly geographically spread in terms of the, our, our range of, of operations, and because we're, as you say, a health and safety regulator and an economic regulator. And we also cover the, the channel tunnel as well. It, I will say it's extremely varied in terms of the type of the type of work we cover. We have an independent board as well. We are an independent regulator. We have a board which is independent and very much guards that independence. So I, I work very, very closely with the board on decision making. And I think it's fair to say we, we have a very, very close interaction with government. Um uh, talking about your your international listeners. The, the, the rail industry in Britain is is very heavily subsidised. The strategic road network in Britain is, is paid for almost entirely by the government. And by definition, if you're a regulator of two industries with very, very high degrees of public funding, you're going to spend quite a bit of time with your relevant government departments and with the Treasury. And as I suppose the final point is that there's a lot of interest in rail and road nationally in in Britain. We spend quite a bit of our time dealing with external uh, stakeholders, with the media, and also with a huge supply chain. There's a very, very big private supply chain going into one or two nationalized industries. So I'd say I'm regularly dealing with a very wide range of organizations and and people, but indeed that's what makes it interesting.
1: Yeah, a a, a complex set of interfaces and organizational personalities to, to nurture and master, I guess.
2: Indeed, and then you, the, the thing is, you've always got to keep your mind. So, well, what's the end game? And the, the end game is that the users of the networks, uh, you know, both rail and road. It's easy, almost always it's almost easy to get, get lost in the system if you're not careful, and, and stand back and say, just let's just have another walk through about why why are we why are we doing this? And so we've got rail and road, we've got freight uh, and passengers, and of course we've got the taxpayer, and. What you might say more broadly, that the public interest. Uh, and, and ultimately, we, we are guardians of, of the public interest.
1: So, I mean, the ORR is, is, as you described, critical to rail sector, providing that monitoring role for, for the strategic highways in England. Uh, standing back from f- the specific role of the ORR in those two sectors, how important is transport regulation in the UK these days? Do you think it's grown in importance?
2: yes i think it, i think it has i mean there are there are other transport regulators in britain i mean we have a an aviation regulation in effect the civil aviation authority and we, we we don't deal with that but i think the, the re, if you think about why is it so important just look at the scale of the industries. Uh, there's only one network rail network rail owns virtually all the rail infrastructure in britain not everything but virtually everything it's spending just on its core business over 10 billion pounds a year you know that that is a big company by by most by most standards. National Highways is is, is a bit small, but it's still still a significant company. So I think just the the scale on rail of having a single monopolist over such a wide reach, having such a big impact on every other company, and it's publicly funded, so you have a political dimension, uh, it does put a lot of emphasis on on the regulator really holding the ring there and, and bringing crucially transparency to to the whole process in in, in the nature of the industry. And your your point there is is it is growing in importance. I I, I guess the different one for me there is around the the national highways one, because the legislation for that actually set up our role as a a regulator. And I, I think the word in the legislation does refer to monitor, but we are a regulator of national highways. And the reason why I use the word regulator is that we have enforcement powers. We can require the company to do something. And to me, that, that immediately, it, the monitors don't have that. <laughs> um, you're, 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 so I probably shouldn't say it's but I always thought the legislation didn't quite capture in that single word <laughs> the, the role. The, the, those enforcement powers are crucial. But if you look at the, the role of regulation there, it, it was very much as part of a package. The government wanted to see a, a package which. Got national highways more focused on the user again, so it's less of just maybe sort of a, a very good engineering company, and more sort of why are we doing this? What what are, what are the users of the network uh, working for? So that in a sense was quite a big structural change in in for highways, strategic highways in in Britain, in the relationship between a, a, a new company and a new regulator, and and that was took some while for, I think for, for to settle in. It's a you know, you've been a company that's never had a regulator before, and you get one. <laughs> and and, and we we had no prior experience in road, and we get and we get that role. That that was a big shift. I mean, I really remember this sort of the early period. We, we, it was just
1: hard hard work all around. Yeah, but learning learning on both sides. Indeed, Stephen John's exposition around the role of regulation in the sector. How, what any perspectives from how you've seen seen its change in Europe? Do you do you see increasing demand for independent regulation?
0: I think I think there is, and I think probably something which John's been obviously a lead of is a lot of the regulation was was brought in in the mid '80s with private industries being privatised and, and companies being regulated through that process. But I think increasingly there's a recognition throughout Europe that regulation needs to play a role with both private companies, but also publicly funded companies and corporatized companies and incentives may be different in those organizations, but they still need to play a role in trying to achieve what John has also described is what the consumers need. And that that's a process that I think has, it, it, it's probably been happening for 20 or 30 years, but it is something which is certainly a trend which continues. Thank you. I'm intrigued by that.
1: With an unregulated market, the consumer, the user provides the incentive on the organisation to adapt. And, and I'm intrigued, John, a question I've got is, do you see the regulation as a, as a driver of change, that you are a catalyst and a force for good, which causes an organisation to change? Or are you more of an arbiter and judge to know whether they're going fast enough?
2: Uh, i I'd probably say that we try to be more of a driver of change. I mean, just to illustrate that, we used to have quite lengthy debates, less so now, but back in the day, about about enforcement, about an emphasis on enforcement. You give the company a clear target. Uh, if it doesn't deliver, you enforce. Personally, I always felt, well, I don't think most users of systems are actually massively interested in sort of retrospective enforcement if things have already gone wrong i think i don't think that necessarily gives people what they want and but by way of contrast and i'm not saying this is completely black and white i think you you probably do have to vary a bit in different circumstances but if you look at say uh, network rail and it, every year it's set it's got an efficiency target so you, you could wait to see whether it hits the efficiency target and then do something about it you know you could you, you could try and punish it in some way although with because it's a nationalised industry, in effect, there are fewer sort of private um, sort of incentives there. But what 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 we just found a lot more useful. We, we was just doing. We did a lot of work with Network Rail on leading indicators of efficiency. How how good a set of in, leading indicators could we get, which actually gave a pretty high degree of forecasting accuracy, perhaps up to a year out. Not I mean not not, not i talking years and years out, but within say an annual business cycle. And that's just proved so much more valuable, really, because we spend a lot of time getting them right. We track them together very closely. They prove to be pretty accurate. And, and that's allowed a much more sort of nuanced conversation about, about, say, spreading lessons across the different regions of network rail just to make sure everyone's picking up on all of those efficiency points. Rather than just saying, well, no, we failed, we failed. And it doesn't work in all areas. I wouldn't, wouldn't say it was a panacea, but as a general rule of thumb, I, I, I really think that's worth driving for.
1: And, Stephen, the, the, any view on European perspectives that you've seen or aviation perspectives of how, whether, whether it's enforcement or for leaning incentives, lagging or leading the indicators, whether there's a, is, there a, is, is what the UK and what John and the RR are doing different to? What you might have perceived in Europe, or is that pretty cons- consistent?
0: I, I mean, I think it does. It does come back to where the company's decision making is, is is coming from. What, what the governance of the company, where where can you put the incentives? But I, am very much a believer in having the balance right, really across those those different levers that are available to regulators and using that balance it may be tailored in a slightly different way depending on the industry and depending on the ownership arrangements and the incentives of that company but using a balance across those three i think is is important one of the Important
1: perspectives in that relationship of using the different levers available. I guess, John, is that as a health and safety regulator, that's quite is that is that that's quite different to the economic regulation role, or it plays. There's a there's a relationship relation to those things, and I wonder how because the ORR didn't start off with that role; it was given it later on. And I'm just wondering how have you seen that come to bear in the organisation, and what does it what does it mean for the day to day operation and functioning of the ORR?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mike. I mean, and certainly when I first joined the R.R., we, we were what you might call a pure economic regulator. We, we had no uh, health and safety powers. And then a decision was taken and legislation was introduced effectively to move the health and safety teams from what was then the health and safety regulator more generally into the ARR. And that was a big, big cultural Change. I mean, it wasn't just a sort of technical change; it was a cultural change. You, you're bringing two very different groups of people together with very different backgrounds, and at the time, there were quite a few people, certainly people externally, uh, who said, "Well, this, this is, this is not right. This is not going to work. You shouldn't be mixing uh, economic decisions and and health and safety decisions." and I think that's been proved as an argument; be conclusively wrong, absolutely no doubt. Uh, and I still have people arguing about this today, so I'm happy to I'm happy to debate it because people are still debating it. Um, but I'm um, I'm absolutely convinced that there is a more informed de- debate and discussion about both health and safety issues and economic issues because we've got those two groups of people together. And I, just to give, if I just had time for one really quick example, the rail sector in, in Britain, uh, rail uh, usage is down, revenues. Are down there's a lot of pressure to save money not surprisingly, it's, it's, and it's taxpayer funded and you've got looking to save money so Network Rail have had a proposal about modernising their way ways of working on maintenance. It's called modernising maintenance proposal. In a full year, it could be gross savings of around 100 million pounds a year. It's a, it's a big initiative. But the main issues with it have been concerns about health and safety implementation of it. Could it be implemented safe, safely? It's different ways of working, and we've approached that in in a sort of dual way. We, we've looked at the sort of, uh, we looked at the efficiency sides of it, but we've we had our safety inspectors go down to meetings. incredibly local level, individual delivery units, with trade union teams, talking through exactly how we check the potential health and safety implications of it. And as a result of that, effectively by that sort of collaborative workings, the Network Rail have agreed it, it's gone through the safety processes, the unions have been very closely consulted. And... And I hope that that will effectively be a more robust proposal over time because of the degree of working from different angles as that has gone into it. I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's perfect or there weren't debates along the way, but to me, it's more likely to hold uh, as an initiative and change. And, uh, and that's, that's one, one of the benefits of having a, a regulator covering both angles from my perspective.
1: And and in the day to day operation of the organisation, how do you bring those those, those because they've got different capabilities as you said? I can imagine at your top team, safety professionals, economic regulation professionals coming together. Does it does it come together at a, a, a lower level at the you know the coal face level? Or?
2: Absolutely, yes. Um, we we have a process of uh, escalating concerns that we have with network rail, so we have a sort of a. a Basically, we have a list of almost like a watch list of things we're looking at that we think might turn into concerns. Then they get escalated literally into into concerns, and we rank for them. And if you look at the way that process works, then people actively debate whether effectively this is, say, a, a safety or asset management issue. It happened particularly on uh, structures, as an example. We had an issue about backlogs of inspections of structures, things like bridges and, uh, and things like that. What, what's the best way of tackling this? Was it really a safety issue or was it more of an asset management issue? And, and those, those sort of debates, as you say, at that, at that sort of what you might call the working level, really real, the, the sort of coal face. Uh, I, I think are great. I think they're invaluable. They just lead to better outcomes.
1: Uh, and Stephen, uh, how, does it, how does you see it, perceive it working in the aviation sector?
0: Well I think I think it's evolved I think in many ways the UK was a leading proponent of how this worked and there was there was a separate economic and safety regulator but it was still part of the CAA and and I think you you can really contrast that with how the regulatory oversight of of air traffic management in Europe was introduced which it was only really introduced in the in the late 1990s there were indicators and performance areas which covered safety, capacity, environment and cost efficiency. So it it really reflected the evolution of of regulation over that period whereas a lot of focus in the early days was around the kind of costs and the cost efficiency. There actually are now indicators on equally important areas of safety, the amount of capacity that's available in the system and the environmental impact of operating the system. So I think there's there's that's a matter of time I think and the the benefit of other regulators plowing the way previously in that area.
1: Stephen you picked up that broader agenda and particularly I'm thinking now about the environmental and social delivery of of transport I guess of of asset management etc. and and John how are things evolving? Because it seems to me now that the good news is we talk about transport and its outcomes a lot more clearer than perhaps we did before. We know why we have a transport system. But there is expectations about how those outcomes are now achieved through you know, minimizing carbon footprint and operating sustainably and delivering social value through these things. How does the ORR wrestle with a I think, which I think is, an, is still an emerging agenda and emerging science in some of these areas.
2: It, it is d- definitely an emerging science, and it, it, it has—it's been quite a significant change over the over the few years. I, you go back, you know, literally back in the day, I, I don't remember much debate about biodiversity units uh, and, th- and things like that. I mean, that's the in, in asset terms, this is a relatively short-term issue. Whereas now you look at uh, national highways uh, running the street road networks in England, and they have targets around uh, increasing biodiversity units. They've got, they've got targets they're held to account for. We publish the outcomes uh, of those and whether they're making progress towards it and uh, net gains. And it, it, is, it's, it, has, it is a big shift. Uh, in some ways, though, the, the shift the, the other way of, of the impact of the environment on the assets, uh, I think in, in some ways has just been even more profound. I mean, there is, it's been a huge feature of our work over the last few years on rail and road, an area of quite big debate as well, especially when you've got a constrained funding environment, how you prioritize in that scenario. And it's led quite big shifts in spend by assets, more spend on drainage. For example, particularly on on, on rail. I mean, that, that's and we, we monitor that whole area far more closely than you know, I I remember sort of ten years ago or or whenever the, the the focus we put into the analysis of, of drainage assets, uh, the the resilience of drainage assets and of worth works and and the, the issue for us in in Britain, unlike I think a lot of countries, is just how old our acid base is. We've got a lot of assets going back a hundred and fifty years or, or more, and and they they were designed in a world where people didn't have to think much about these things, and that that is that is really driving costs now in in the system and and some fairly ruthless prioritisation because you. It, it, it drives a debate about, well, you, you might want to add lots of things, lots of nice things to this railway network and let's have lots of enhancements and new lines and things. But if if you, if you it's going to cost more to maintain your core asset base over the years, and at the moment, looking forward over the next five years, we, we will not sustain the condition of the core asset base. Um, it's going to get a little bit worse. They're, they're, they're quite profound issues in terms of choices that, that will have to be made over time. And of course, they're, they're not very glamorous bits of work compared to, you know, obviously, it's it, not surprising that a lot of, MP, lots of um, politicians, members of parliament in Britain or, or their constituents, so people would like a new station, wouldn't they? Or, or they'd like maybe a new line to connect them to another part of the country or something like that. And of course, those things add to the asset base as well. And I'm not sure we've, we've quite entirely really confronted some of the very, very tough choices, trade-offs that are to have to be made in, in, in the future.
1: Do you, do you think decision-makers understand those difficult choices, those trade-offs, or they they don't understand, they can't see them, or they can see them, but they're too difficult to take at this stage and we'll wait a little bit longer?
2: It's interesting, I suppose, in, in a semi-political context, context where we have a—it's um, often said in, in Britain that the, tr- the Treasury uh, who are basically the sort of custodians of, of, of the finances here. You know, They—they—they—they're not interested in the, the longer term, or they—they or they don't get these big picture things. Actually, I—I—I I, I find they do. Uh, I find they very very much do get it, but of course. They're, they're having to make choices and priorities too. But certainly when we uh, provide analysis of, of the road network or, or the rail network, there's actually a, an awful lot of interest in just what, what is happening to the core assets. You know, are they being maintained, yes or no? What, and and how, does that, how does that feed through into the future delivery? Because And, and obviously as a regulator, what's the, what's the point of having a regulator if they're, if they're not there at least as a custodian of the long term? Public interest. So even if we think people aren't getting it, as you say, Mike, well, actually, it's sort of our job to explain it, isn't it? Because there's no, there's no excuse for a regulator to go into sort of victim mode and so, say, well, you know, they, they, they don't get it. <laughs> in, in our case, we, we've got to get out there and we've got to say, look, if you care about the long term asset base here, this is what's going to happen. But Actually, I find the, the, the Treasury extremely well informed uh, about, the, about the long-term, the need to maintain and sustain the long-term asset, base.
1: And how – I'm intrigued by the capabilities of the ORR. I mean, because, as you say, we're wrestling with new, new agenda, social value, sustainability, biodiversity, as you said. And now we're talking about seasonal impacts and trying to understand climate science. How do you equip the Orr? With that, with those insights and that capability to communicate to decision makers and to push your regulatories. I'm not sure what you would call your your subjects of uh, regulation. <laughs> I, not,
2: I, I'll pass on the exact word, but I, I, sure. I, uh, know your your, your question is a very, question's are a very good one. It's it's, a, it's actually very challenging because if you if you look at the number of areas we we cover, we we, uh, we cover health, we cover safety, we're, we're a competition. Regulator as well. We are we, we publish national statistics across RHEL. So, so what what you tend to find is that each specialist team, maybe two to three people, yeah. and and hence operationally, from from my perspective as a chief executive, operationally there's there's a sort of fragility there uh, in teams in terms of trying to get resilience and and, and get teams to sort of overlap a bit to get so you've got a bit more resilience in in, in the system. And the, the most the one that we spent a lot of time on recently is just. The, the impact of software in trains. You know, back in the day, trains were, well, a lot of, a lot of it was about mechanical engineering. And if the train failed, you, you, you have somebody who, who knew their mechanics and, and could find where it had gone wrong. Whereas now we, we see increasing examples where it's very hard to explain why something has happened. And in terms of our skill base, we we have hired more external support on that. We've also basically redone our training Regimes for some of our some of our safety inspectors to try and build a sca- skill base around understanding software, and right. and they'll, obviously there'll be this is only heading in one direction, so there'll be a lot more of that. So yeah, we, we like every organisation, we, we have to adapt to a changing requirement, and we have to try and compete in in some of those markets, but they're they're quite hard markets competing, and, and so we we need so the trick for us is to be quite precise about what we need, where we we, we need someone who understands enough to ask the questions rather than can sort of solve, solve the entire coding problem by themselves. We're, we're probably better off going to a specialized private company.
1: Yes. I, I was only having a conversation this morning with an industry colleague who, who, when I said I was chatting to yourself later today, was saying, ah, the ORR, they need to get into the regulation of data. Because so much will be depending on data going forward to influence the real world. It's the control of data that's going to be so important going forward. Another capability you're going to have to add.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, whoever that was, we're pleased to know that at our board uh, last, uh, last month, we were debating our new data strategy. So uh, we, we're, we're, I wouldn't say we solved it, but we're, we're on, on, the, on the case.
1: So, in in preparation for the podcast, I asked colleagues uh, from STEER and particularly the rail team here in the UK, what questions we should pose to you, John. And and this this has come from the team. uh, And I'm assuming there's a vested interest or a, a perspective on it. So, they were asking about that environmental social delivery angle, particularly about how it compares with other European countries. But the question then went on to ask about how has Brexit Change the relationship between ORR and its counterparts. Has Brexit given you some more freedom? Has it uh, given you ability to compare and contrast perhaps with other regulation across Europe? What's, what's your take?
2: Brexit did have quite a profound impact on us. We, we were integral part of lots of groups across Europe dealing with what you might call things like technical standards or, or safety issues. And we, we actually, going back, back over the years, we've actually played quite a leading role. In the development of many standards, uh, and indeed the, the, the approach to safety, uh, in, in terms of sort of more risk-based approach rather than a rules-based approach, you might say, to, to, to very general terms, uh, all that that went. I mean, that largely disappeared, and that, that was quite a big impact. I. I haven't personally seen this is not this is not a political comment but i don't, I don't know if there's any any sort of particular gain from the from the or for, from, for the or from from brexit what 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 we have done is tried to maintain our contacts with with european countries because a lot of them are, are relevant for sort of almost like well you go not to actual data points or data and intelligence gathering comparing uh contrasting um uh so we, we've tried to maintain that but it ha- it has been a found change although i suppose going back to this the 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 point about sort of different approaches we we do we do actually see that on a day to day basis in terms of the regulation of the the channel tunnel uh we were really closely uh, with our with our french uh, with our counterparts in in france um and, and you do you do see the interesting differences of approach it was only recently that uh uh, a very very powerful electricity interconnector was put installed in the tunnel for the first time as far as I know it's ever been done in a live running tunnel anywhere in the world although somewhat someone one of your listeners might correct me on that but it raised so this was to allow basic electricity to be traded between Britain and France and it, it's, it's actually turned out to be extremely valuable both ways and, and during. While some of the French nuclear reactors were down for maintenance, the, the British electricity was shipped over. So it's, it's, it's useful for both countries. And it's been a very substantial revenue generator for for the for tunnel-tunnel company. But the safety issues around that and the debate about the safety issues that were, were very, very technical, very, very intense debates with two different approaches to the way that safety is, is, is addressed in legal terms. Um, and very different backgrounds from, from ourselves and our French counterparts into how we both got to the uh, the issues, but but the fact is we we work together very 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 well. Uh, we've got extremely good relations, so you do have different approaches, but they 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 can they, they can be overcome uh, as long as the wills there. But it, for us, this is a sort of day to day issue in in terms of um, health and safety and and. At the moment, and more recently in terms of access to the railway, because at the moment, I mean, just to explain for sort of listeners more more generally, there's there's only one train company that basically really moves you between London, Paris, and and, and other cities, and in recent months, three competitors have, have named themselves, which is quite quite a sea change. Quite a sea change. In the in, in the operating environment, and and now we but those operators are going to be traveling in, in uh, through different countries and and through the tunnel. So again, we we are in discussions with our with our counterparts counterparts around that. So these, these these issues are still there. The, the, the issues of geography and competition, health and safety have re- remain.
1: Yes. Stephen, you've done a number of studies for the European Commission, European Parliament on, on well, helping them to identify policy, but also reviewing the impact of policy. Have you got any perspectives on how, how I suppose, different nations and regulators have worked across well or where they, you've seen that it, it
0: really hasn't worked and some people have abdicated to comply or something? yeah I mean that's a big issue, I think uh Mike, in terms of how well do people work together, and I think there's different experiences really i think I think where things have evolved with working with regulators to get the regulations. That perhaps were better than regulations being imposed and the regulators catching up with it. And, and there are a few occasions in, in 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 the EU where regulations have been imposed and it's taken quite a long time for the kind of regulators to catch up. I think the the classic one is 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 something that all of us will be affected by is is passenger rights, and that that's that's gradually come across all transport modes. It was originally in aviation, but it's actually now in all transport modes. I think that has taken some time for cooperation and the systems to really catch up with the with the concept. So I, I do think it does depend on on where you started from.
1: Thank you. I mean, we've, so that was talking about, I suppose, regulation across geographical boundaries. I, I, John, I wanted to talk to you about. Transport system, rail and road, they connect to other things. They require the connection to other things. There are, as you said, you were indicated earlier. There's, there are more regulators in the UK than just the O R, the O R R. How is the interaction between different uh, regulators, between modes, networks, utilities? How, how's that going? How do we ensure that that regulatory ecosystem which emerges is both efficient, coherent, agile, and supports the development and deployment? Of the new technology, such as zero emission vehicles, which needs energy, which will be located on transport mobility hubs, and how is that working?
2: Uh, it, so, so, just think about whether it's best illustrate more general or through some examples. So, just just taking your point about okay, certainly electric vehicles charging points. If you if you look at national highways, it was agreed fairly early on that there should be an aim to get a certain number of charging points at every service station, and that was. I think I was agreed pretty quickly actually it, it, it just, it's, But then as you say there are there are interfaces not just between regulators but between government regulators, private companies, uh, financial arrangements so that they're never, they're never easy but I think we have been shown that they they can be done. You, but you also get operational interfaces uh, so if you look say at the work that national highways does and the work that network rail does, often these intersect. At uh, points, they they affect each other, or they might both be jointly working in an area. And I do think that the sort of, and this matters to people at the local level. You know, the, how much disruption these works cause, and people think, well, couldn't they just couldn't they just talk to each other? Uh, and this is this is a very common. You, know, you can see why, people think, oh, no, sure, it's obvious that they, they they could talk to each other. And I, I do actually think over the last few years that network rail and national highways have actually got better at coordinating. Joining up their work. It's not, it's not always possible to iron these things out, but they, they and this partly I think reflects Network Rail and the National Highways' increased regional focus. It's not all done from central HQ, where you know, everything seems frankly slightly distant. There's much more re- regional planning. And so it, it might seem sort of, well, okay, how many jobs are you talking about? But to the individuals involved, affected by them on the ground, these are quite important things. And so I, I don't think sort of, Almost like small-scale local cooperation should be overlooked uh, either. Uh, we, we, we tend to gravitate to the sort of big, really exciting stuff, don't we? Uh, but th- these things matter at, at all levels. Just, I suppose, just one, going back to the, the other level, really really high-level point. The regulators in, in Britain do talk to each other. There, there are forums, there's even a you know, chief sex forum for, for regulators in, in, in Britain. So they, 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 do, they do talk to each other. And I, I suspect, though, that it's just a little bit different in rail and road because there, there are literally fewer companies. You know, there are quite a few water companies or um, electricity providers and things like that. There's only one national highways. And there's only one network rail, so the dynamics I think are a little bit different in in terms of joining up between different organisations. But it, it, it happens. I think sometimes though people <laughs> you, people sort of use joining up in, in slightly different ways. I think what sometimes people mean by joining up is like can't one if you put more money into it. Yeah. So uh, I I frankly feel sometimes we're talking euphemisms. Uh, uh, And what people really do say, they're not actually interested in the process of joining up at all. They want more cash to go into a particular area. And that is a slightly different point.
1: So folks, that's the end of part one with John. In the next part, we'll shift gears to discuss specific projects, including HS2, and explore how these decisions shape the future of rail infrastructure. I'm looking forward to sharing how we dive deeper into these topics in our next installment. See you then.